Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter number 22 this morning. While you find your place there, let me welcome you. As has already been said before several times, but I want you to hear it from the pastor. Welcome. We're thrilled that you're here. Uh, Thrilled that the Lord's here. Amen. What a privilege. What an honor that the Lord would bless us with His presence. And I want to be mindful to give Him glory in that respect today. And I'm thrilled that you're here. I know a lot of the reason He shows up is because you show up. You might say, well, preacher, that don't sound right. The Bible says he inhabiteth the praise of his people. Amen. Where two or more are gathered together in my name, there will I be. Uh, Because we're here today and lifting up the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe he's blessed us with his presence by his grace. And I'm thrilled that he's here, thrilled that you're here, uh, thrilled at what God's going to do. Matthew chapter number 22. And I'd like to begin reading in verse number 15. Matthew chapter 22, verse number 15. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him, Jesus, entangle him in his talk. And they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, we know that thou art true and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny. And he said unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? They say unto him, Caesar's. Then saith he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things which are God's, the things that are God's. Verse 22 says, When they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to be in your house. Bless the preaching of thy word. I pray that, Lord, you would give us the right words, uh, the words by choice and administration of the Holy Spirit uh, to speak these truths. And, Father, that in everything that is said, we would not transgress or trespass upon your authority, that, Lord, we would not give place to the flesh, but, Lord, that we would also not give place to fear or to cowardice, but that we'd be bold to speak the truth in love. And, Lord, I pray that you'd receive glory from it. Now, Lord, these are your people, and they are the sheep of your pasture. And I pray, Father, that you would uh, have your will and way in each of their hearts this morning. May we be made more into the image of Christ. May we be drawn closer unto thee. And we'll be sure to thank you for it, Lord. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. For some time, there has been a thought that's been burning in my heart and in my mind that I have wanted to uh, the Lord to allow me to develop and talk about and, and for Him to reveal to me in the Word of God uh, some places concerning it, an example of something Christ did that I think is, is deeply important and fascinating. And we have said, uh, such an example before us in, in the testimony of Scripture today. Now, on the face of it, what takes place is uh, the Pharisees and the Herodians come to Jesus and, and they've got a plan. They want to ensnare him, entangle him in his talk. And so they come and they ask him a question. They said, uh, is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? Now, on the face of it, they, that may seem like an innocuous question. It may seem like, well, what, what would be the harm in asking said question? What would be the harm in answering uh, such a question? But in fact, what they were seeking to do was undermine the authority of the Lord Jesus. And they were seeking to create a situation in which he had no answer that he could give that would not damage him in some way. Uh, We'll say a word about what their plan was here in a moment. But the Lord replies back to them in this way. He says, show me a penny. Now, when he says penny there, uh, and I believe penny is the exact word that ought to be there, uh, but it's referencing a Roman denarius. 
Uh, it's referencing a particular coin that bore the image of Caesar and bore the name of Caesar upon it. He says, show me the tribute money. And they give him a penny, and he asks this question. He says, whose image is on this penny? And they said, well, of course, it's Caesar's. And he answers in verse 21 a fascinating thing. He says, render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. Now, it would appear as though on the face of it that he's simply saying, yes, pay, pay tribute, that's fine, but don't forget to tithe, don't forget to give God what's his. But I think what's taking place here is much more profound and much deeper than just that face value reading of it. I think what the Lord is doing, and I've seen several times in Scripture, by my account, I can find about 18 times that I can point out where I believe the Lord transcends the conversation, where He takes the question that is asked, and He elevates it, and He reveals something about the human nature, about the human condition, and He reveals something about God. The Lord Jesus had a wondrous way of doing this. They would come and try to entrap him in his words and they'd think they had him caught. They'd think they had him figured out. And then before it was all done, it would end the way it does in verse 22 here when they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. Try as they may to ensnare the Lord Jesus, he had a way of not going under their argument or going at their argument, but rather going above their argument and revealing them something about themselves and something about God. I'm using this phrase, and this is this is my choice phrase. You can call it any number of things. But I'm calling this a transcendental truth. A transcendental truth. And what mean, uh, what that means is, is this. I've, I've marked out three sort of characteristics of what a transcendental truth was when the Lord would, would take these arguments and, and transcend them. It did three things. One, it seemed to most of the time that it would elevate the issue. In other words, they would ask a question and he would take that question and raise it above merely the question they asked and show what was truly behind that question. How many of you know this, that most of the time uh, you can learn a lot not just by listening to someone, but by listening through someone and by asking yourself what prompts them to ask that question in the first place. Uh, let me give you an example that in the domestic realm, if your wife looks at you and says, what are you thinking? She's not asking a penny for your thoughts, men. And a little bit of wisdom might suggest, oh no, maybe I've done something wrong. Well, when they would ask these questions, the Lord knew what they were really asking. And so He would elevate this issue. He would answer their question. But in that answer he would reveal something greater. And that's the second thing. He would often expound a deep truth in doing this. I don't want to say too much about that because that's really a lot of what the message is this morning. But he would expound a deep truth. He would he would tell them not just... He wouldn't just answer what they were asking. He would answer what they needed to hear. He would go deeper than what they inquired and get to the very heart of why they were asking the question in the first place. And then the third thing that most of the time he would do, at least in these 18, 19 examples that I've found, don't get nervous, we ain't going to go through all of them today. We ain't even probably ever going to go through all of them. We're just going to look at one today. But in, in all these occasions, or in most of them, he was usually being challenged by his enemies. And in doing this, he would often expose his enemies for what they really were. He would silence his detractors and expose that at the end of the day, it was their wicked heart that was birthing 
this question or this contention or this conflict in the first place. Now, I want to take a few moments this morning, and I've really asked the Lord to help me say all this the way that it needs to be said. You know, I I always feel inadequate to preach, but but particularly so this morning. I'm trusting the Holy Spirit to to make up for my lack and, and, and my infirmity. But I want, if I can, to take a few moments this morning and preach to you on a transcendental truth about tribute. This all centers around this issue of what the Bible calls tribute money. Now, we don't normally pay tribute in this day that we live in, at least not in the way that they did, and we don't use that terminology. So let me give you a basic definition of what tribute money was. Most of you probably already know, but but in case you don't, Webster's Dictionary defines tribute as an annual or stated sum of money or other valuable thing paid by one prince or nation to another, either as an acknowledgement of submission or as the price of peace and protection, or by virtue of some treaty. The Romans made all their conquered countries pay tribute. So what they were saying essentially is, will you own the authority of Caesar? Will you acknowledge his superiority? And will you pay tribute unto him? Tribute was something that was given as payment in recognition of basically three things. One, it was given in payment of your life. The idea was this country has conquered you and they could have killed you, but they chose to keep you alive and they spared you and they pardoned you. And because of that, because they didn't kill you as an enemy combatant, you owe a portion of your life to them and for the rest of your life you'll have to pay in, in, in payment, uh, in, in, uh, in, in uh, acknowledgement, excuse me, of their sparing of your life. So it was given in payment of your life. Not only that, it was given in payment of your liberty. The fact that you were able in their mind, in the conquering forces' mind, to walk around their nation, uh, to enjoy the things that existed in their nation. Uh, The fact that you weren't treated as a trespasser, the fact that you weren't treated as a vagrant, was due to the fact that you paid tribute. You were paying for your liberty to walk at peace and to walk in freedom. And not only that, it was given as payment for your luxury. The fact that you enjoyed their economy, the fact that you were allowed to engage in commerce and and buy and sell and try to build a life for yourself, uh, this was repaid through the payment of tribute. How many of you know that there's a spiritual truth there as well in what we owe God? We'll get to it here in a moment, but let me just say this, that you say, preacher, why do I owe God anything? Because He's given you your life. When you were an enemy combatant and He could have struck you dead, He showed mercy. He's given you your liberty. He has freed you from the bondage of sin and iniquity. You may still live in that sin, but you don't have to live in that sin. You can have victory through Christ Jesus. And He's given you your luxury. How many of you know everything in your life that you've got you owe to God? Now, somebody's going to say, well, preacher, I've worked real hard to have the life that I have. And who gave you the health to do that? Amen. Who gave you the freedom to do that? Who gave you the opportunity? So this tribute money, it was very distinct what it meant. It's not vague terminology. They were saying, should we pay our annual poll tax, our our annual capitation tax, should we give that to the Roman government or should we not? Yet the question they were asking was not birthed out of genuine concern. In fact, the Bible tells us something about their guiltiness. Uh, Notice this with me. In the three uh, synoptic gospels, uh, there are three different things that the Bible tells us that the Lord was aware of in their hearts. In Matthew, it tells us that He perceived their wickedness. 
their perverseness. In other words, these were not people that loved God and that wanted to know the mind and will of God. These weren't people that cared anything about the opinion of God, but they had ulterior motives in what they were doing. So he talks about their perverseness. Mark talks about their pocket change. Now, you say, preacher, what do you mean their pocket change? Well, Mark says that the Lord perceived their hypocrisy. And even here in Matthew's account, the Lord looks at them and says, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? Now somebody's going to say, Well, preacher, how are they hypocrites? I'll tell you how they were hypocrites. Because when the Lord said, Show me a penny, they reached in their pocket and pulled one out. Now, I'll say a word about this here in a moment. But that money was used only and solely to pay that tribute for the kin. That was it. So they're asking Jesus, Should we or should we not? Lord, we just don't know. And He says, well, where's your tax money? They say, oh, it's right here. They were hypocrites. They were already paying tribute unto Caesar. That's why they had that money. They didn't care anything about the, the actual issue. And one commentator said it this way, said this was a Roman coin, and they're having that coin about them and using it was proof that they themselves held it lawful to pay the tribute. And their pretensions, therefore, were mere hypocrisy. And then he exposes their plans. In Luke's account, the Bible says he knew their craftiness. And of course, given the benefit of reading the inspired narrative of God's Word, we know that they had a plan. This was not anything they were sincere about, but they were trying to ensnare the Lord Jesus. Now, I wonder, I see their guiltiness, but what about their goal? Just We ain't even preaching yet, all right? So don't get nervous. Uh, that, uh, That clock's broken. All the clocks are broken. The clock on your wrist is broken. Every clock's broken, all right? I see their goal. What were they trying to do? Well, I see three things they were trying to do, basically. The Lord Jesus had three options that He could do. They asked Him this question. Should we or shouldn't we pay tribute to Caesar? And He had three options. One, He could give no answer. And if He did that, their goal was to disturb Him, to confound Him, to confuse Him, to try to show before those that were around that they were smarter than Him, and that he had no real answer to this, that he was merely a vague dreamer and a, and a religious pontificator, but that when it came to the matters of real life, he didn't have any real answers. So their first goal, they thought, well, maybe we'll disturb him. Of course, it was possible he could say yes. And if he did that, it would have discredited him. He's the Messiah of Israel. He's come preaching a kingdom. In fact, he's come preaching two kingdoms, the kingdom of God in men's hearts and the kingdom of heaven that resides in heaven. Uh, He had came and said, hey, listen, he was a king and and he was going to rule and reign. And they had expected him to set up that kingdom immediately and overthrow the yoke of the Roman government. And so if he had said, well, yes, we we pay tribute with no qualifiers, then they felt like that would discredit him. They felt like, well, that, that proves that he sees that the Romans are more powerful than him. Now, the third option was he could say no. And if that was the case, I feel assured they had a garrison of Roman soldiers just waiting to try to destroy him. They thought if he says no, then they'll see him for what he is, an agitator. And when they see that, they'll come, they'll arrest him, they'll throw him in jail, and it'll destroy his ministry. And yet the Lord answers, the choice is A, B, C, and he answers God. It's, It's one, two, three, and he answers a perfect number seven. And he reveals something to them. Now, I see basically three truths that he reveals that I want to share with you this morning and then we'll be done. The first is I think he reveals to them a truth about currency. 
This whole passage really revolves around the idea of that penny, of money, and of what money is and of what money represents. Have you ever thought about the fact we live in a very monetary-based society today? We don't... I mean, I bet there's probably nobody in this room that has paid their taxes in potatoes or corn. Uh, You're probably not getting ready to uh, bring a heifer down to the IRS office this April 15th. No, we pay things in money. We carry around pictures of dead presidents that the government tells us is worth something. And and that's what we pay our our bills and our responsibilities with. But at the end of the day, all those are our manifestations and representations of what we value. What we value. The money you have in your pocket, you probably have because you traded your time and your labor and your energy so that you could procure it. And you didn't procure it because you have a great affinity for pictures of dead presidents. But you bought it because it had, or you, you earned it because it has the value to carry it somewhere else and to use it. The Lord Jesus gets to the very heart and the very core of what's valuable to human beings and what's valuable to God. Notice first off the dual currencies that are spoken about here. And I think a great many people miss what's being said here. When the Lord Jesus says, render unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's and render unto God's the things which are God's, we'll talk here in a minute about our lives and how we ought to give our lives to the Lord. But he, and, and in their mind specifically, they would have thought he was talking about the difference between two different types of coin and currency that were used in that part of the world. He looks at them and he says, show me a penny, a tribute money, a Roman denarius. Now, this Roman denarius was the currency of the Roman kingdom. If you had business with the Roman government, that's what you would have used uh, to purchase it. It'd just be like if, if you're in the U.S., typically you carry around U.S. dollars. If you're in Canada, you carry around Canadian dollars and uh, so on and so forth. That was the currency of their kingdom. Now, on the other hand, Uh, the average Jew would have been walking around with a second type of currency in their pocket. And that would have been the shekel. The shekel was the money that was used in the system of the temple. Uh, It was ordained all the way back in in Moses' day that they would have their own form of of currency. The Old Testament law said that the shekel would be the way that they would purchase things and buy things, that that would be the currency of the Jewish kingdom. And all of the business that was to be done in the temple was to be done with the shekel. So what he's really pointing to here is a difference between two different systems of currency and two different systems of value. I don't travel globally. I don't have to keep up with it. But I recognize, and and I'll admit I'm a bit mystified to some degree when you see world markets because I can take a dollar here and that dollar means something somewhere else. I might, uh, the, the people around me might value it a certain way right here where I'm standing. And even within our country, a dollar will buy something, uh, in, in, you know, in Knoxville, Tennessee that it won't buy in Los Angeles. And, and the same money that would buy something in Los Angeles, you could go to Texas and buy a lot more with it and so on and so forth. You see, in different places, different contexts, different environments, and certainly in different countries, these currencies have different values. And what he's pointing to is this twofold system. He talks about the tribute money, the denarius. Uh, it was uh, one denarius would have been the annual poll tax. My basic back of the envelope math tells me it would have been worth about $180 in today's money. And that's what he's holding when he holds the penny. But then the shekel, the temple money, uh, would have been what was used to pay the annual temple poll tax. Uh, just as they were required to pay a tax to the Roman government uh, as Jews, they were also required to pay a tax to the temple work and worship. You know what I found interesting? Uh, When they would pay that annual amount to the Roman government, that was one denarius. But if they paid their annual amount to the temple, that was half a shekel. And half a shekel 
was worth two Roman denariuses. Now you say, preacher, I ain't got time for a math lesson. Well, let me just break it down for you. You know what that tells me? It tells me a couple things. One, it tells me that God's currency is of greater denomination and value than the world's currency. They looked at it and they understood that that shekel meant more than that denarius. Can I tell you something? This world has certain things it values, certain things that are meaningful to it. The the currency of the kingdom, things like prosperity and power and influence and pleasure and prominence. And can I tell you, those things don't mean much in the eyes of God. And God has certain things that He values. And we'll talk about them here in a moment. Uh, But God values things like the fruit of the Spirit, like love and joy and temperance and peace and faith and righteousness. And those things, friend, are worth far more than the things the world could ever offer you. Could ever offer you. Not only that, but I see that there was, that the shekel was a greater denomination, but I find this, that it was also in greater demand. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, a half shekel was what they paid to the temple, but that was twice what they paid to the Roman government. You know what that tells me? Listen now, that tells me God expects to get more from us than what we give to the world. It tells me that the demands that God puts on His people are more than what the world should be able to put upon us. We have this funny idea, and the preacher preached on it Saturday morning. He preached at us, didn't he? I like that. I like preaching. He preached at us. We needed it. I needed it. I needed it more than you needed it. If you didn't need it, I needed your share and my share both. But he talked about giving God our very best. And and so often we have a tendency to give God our leftovers or give Him whatever's left in the in the area or in the deficit of our uh, of our time or of our treasures or of our talents. But I got news for you. Listen, if we're going to serve God the way He's worthy to be served, the way He deserves to be served, the way that He wants to be served, then we're going to be paying more into Him than we pay into this old world. And I ain't just talking about finances. I'm talking about the investment of our life. God help us to be paying more tribute to Caesar than we're paying to God. God help us when we, when we're giving more of ourselves, more of our time and energy to the world than we are to the Lord. I see the dual currencies, but that reminds me that there is a divine currency. We live in this New Testament dispensation of grace. We don't live under the constraints of the temple. We don't pay a temple tax. And the book of Hebrews expresses that vividly to us. The first ten chapters reveal to us how that God has done away with the old way of worship, that God has done away with the old Levitical system, with the way of the law, with the way of the temple, with the way of the sacrifice. And then he moves on to what God values in our life in our day, in our dispensation. And you know how he begins? All through chapter 10, he's dismantling that old system of worship. In chapter number 11, he begins to tell us what God values. He says this in Hebrews 11, 1, Now faith, now faith is the substance. Hey, what substance? That's something of value, right? Talk about our substance, our wealth, our, our, our means. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtain a good report. In other words, he goes to point out that it was never through the rigors of the law that a man was made righteous through God, but it was always through the redemption of the shed blood and the faith in that shed blood. It was always faith. It was never works. It was always faith. It was never works. It was always faith. It was never works that got a man to God. He points to the fact that even the elders obtained a good report by faith. Faith is what God values. Verse number 6, he says it this way in Hebrews eleven six: 6, but without faith it is impossible to please Him. 
Faith is the currency. You ain't got that. It don't matter how many denarius. It doesn't matter how much of Caesar's pocket change. How much, how, how many talents you have. How many treasures you have. How much prominence or ability you have. Without faith, God ain't interested in it. Those things don't transfer to His kingdom. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is and that He is the rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Say, preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying this. The world has things it values. God has things that it values. Now, we're going to see here in just a moment that we're going to, to some degree, have to deal in the world's currencies. And God doesn't forbid it. But never get mixed up, child of God, on what's most important. Hey, you, you got to work a job. Nothing wrong with that. The Bible says if a man doesn't work, he ought not eat. But I'm saying you, you keep in mind while you're clocking in that you've got a greater purpose on this earth. Hey, listen, I understand it takes money to live and, and, and I pay my bills, at least uh, when the debt collectors call, I do. And, 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 and you do too. And I was joking when I said that. Some of y'all got nervous. I do and you do and there's nothing wrong with that. I believe that's noble. I believe it's godly. I believe that we ought to owe no man anything. I believe that's a good thing. But let us never forget in the midst of those temporal responsibilities while we're rendering unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's that there are things that are more important. There are things that are more... I said there are things that are more important. Hey, there is the denarius, and you're going to have to carry it, and you're going to have to spend it. But never forget that that shekel is worth a lot more. And God expects a lot more. Then The world may expect your everything, but God's actually owed your everything. And He ought to get more of us. So He teaches us a transcendental truth about currency. He teaches us what currency really is, that it's really just something we value, and that because of that, it's important to recognize the world values certain things. We may have to participate in that to some degree. But we ought to always value the things that God values more than we value the things that the world values. But then I believe he teaches us here a truth about divine authority. Authority. You see, he talks about currency at the beginning. But it's apparent that they really had no interest in that. They weren't interested in talking about giving to God what they, they should. They were trying to trap him on this authority thing. If he had admitted that they were to pay tribute, he would have basically been admitting that Caesar was superior to him. And he would have been bowing himself and bending himself beneath Caesar's scepter. And they thought, if he does that, if he admits, yes, we've got him. How can he be the Messiah and pay tribute to Caesar? But if he says, no, we've got him, that Roman garrison's going to come in, lock him up. They said, boys, uh, wrap her up. We've got it all figured out. But they couldn't count on what Jesus was going to say. He takes that penny and he asks this question. He says, whose image, whose superscription is on? They said, it's Caesar's. And then he gives a very clear scriptural command. He says, render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's. He points to the fact that we have a civic duty. There are authority... It got quiet in here. Don't be loading your muskets on me. We have a civic duty. God has put us within this world. We are not to be of this world, but we are to operate within this world. And we have a civic responsibility in as much as is feasible and possible, in as much as we can live peaceably with all men, we have a responsibility to see to that civic duty. Can I preach to you young people? Hey, listen, I, I understand people may abstain from time to time for conscience sake or, or, or they may have their own personal reasons, but laziness ought to never keep you from the polls. I ain't talking to old people. You old people already vote. I'm talking to young people. You ought to vote in everything that they have. You ought to, you listen to me? You ought to, it's okay. I'll just keep preaching. You ought to know me well enough to know this by now. 
You ought to vote in everything you can vote in. You ought to vote in every... I'm not just talking about presidential elections. I'm talking about every every state election, every local election. Maybe Knoxville wouldn't be running half crazy if young people would stand up and vote. We have a civic duty and a civic responsibility. Christians are not called to be revolutionaries. Now, somebody's going to say, but preacher, do you believe that God providentially mandated or, or allowed for the creation of America? I do. I do. I believe we're here by the will of God. I believe we're here by the power of God. But I believe this too, that in as much as is possible, I believe that the Christian, there may be times when it's demanded of him by his civic duty uh, to ensure liberty to men and to be willing to uh, refresh the uh, tree of of liberty uh, with the blood of, of patriots and tyrants. There may be times when our civic duty demands it. But we are not to view ourselves as revolutionaries and anarchists who spurn any civic duty or responsibility that we may have. Listen to what Romans chapter number 13 said. Argue with this. Romans 13, 5 says, Wherefore ye must needs be subject, talking about human powers, not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For for this cause pay ye tribute also. For they are God's ministers. I said they are God's ministers. I said they are God's ministers. I said they were God's ministers five years ago, and they're God's ministers today. I said they're God's ministers when I don't like them, and they're God's ministers when I do like them. They're God's ministers when I support what they're doing. They're God's ministers when they're not doing what I think they should be doing. They're God's ministers. That's what your Bible says. Isn't that what your Bible says? They're God's ministers. Attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues. Tribute to whom tribute is due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. You know something interesting I find? I want you to listen carefully. Because these currencies didn't transfer, you wouldn't pay your temple tax with a Roman denarius. You wouldn't pay your Roman tribute tax with a temple shekel. Because they didn't transfer, therefore one, ideally, should never hinder the payment of the other. It would not be typical to take your shekel money to pay your Roman tribute or your denarius to pay your temple poll tax. It wouldn't be something you'd do. There'd be separate lanes, separate responsibilities, separate purses. I want you to listen to me now. I remember an old man of God named Harold Harold Sattler once said this, and it stuck with me. He said, duties never conflict. Can I tell you something? When we're walking in the will of God, and this goes beyond the political realm. Some of you all are already mad because it said something about politics. Go ahead and get mad. Be mad at your preacher that prays for you, that loves you, that holds your hand when somebody dies. Go ahead and get mad at him. But by all means, don't get mad at that political candidate you ain't never met, don't care nothing about you, would take every penny in your wallet with a gun at your back if he could. I, I'm saying this, not just in the political realm, but in all temporal matters. We have temporal responsibilities. We have spiritual responsibilities. We have a, we have a clock that, or, or, or a, a time card that has to be punched in. And I don't believe God's against that. We also have a pew that needs to be filled. And I don't think God's against that. And I believe when both of those things are in the right and proper order, one won't exist to the destruction of the other. Now listen, I'm not a tyrant. There are times when men have responsibilities. There's times when an ox has to be got out of a ditch. There's times when things happen. But I'm saying this. The idea is you got these two currencies. And it should be, except for laziness or greed or unpreparedness, there should never be a reason to exchange your shekels for denarius or denarius for shekels. 
You know what I find? When we begin to let one area of our life suffer at the expense of the other, it's usually due to unpreparedness. It's usually due to the fact that we've not shown exactitude and diligence in preparing and having the ability to do honor unto both of those things. Some of y'all don't know what I'm talking about. That's all right. Uh, some of y'all, if you do know what I'm talking about, it's probably just because the Holy Ghost said it because I ain't making enough sense for you to get it on your own. I- I'm saying this morning, you got two currencies. We have responsibilities to both of them. In an ideal world, in an ideal world, I know we ain't always living, but in an ideal world, you can pay both of them. And you shouldn't be exchanging the one for the other. You have temporal responsibilities. You don't have to let those go in order to honor God. But you also have spiritual responsibilities. And you don't have to let those go just so that you can meet your temporal responsibilities and obligations. You see, I I see in this passage that we have a civic duty, but I cannot help but notice that there is a superior duty. He says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's but render unto God the things that are God's. You know, there are times, and I, and I did a lot of preaching on that so that I could say what I'm about to say now because I don't want you to misunderstand. Some people run to this when it's not the occasion for it. But there are times in which those duties may begin. There are times when man tries to ask for things that belongs to God. When those times come, guess what? There's no question about who gets the right away. This is true in the political realm. It's true in the civic realm. It's true in our temporal responsibilities. It's true in our day-to-day. It's true in our marriage. It's true in everything. There are times when the demands of life try to lay claim to things that belong to God. And when that happens, hey, how, how did the apostles say it? Acts chapter number 5, verse 27. It says, when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, did not we straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. He didn't say we ought to obey God and never obey men. He said rather. If there's a choice, if I have to choose, if I have to decide, it'd be far better to let my temporal responsibilities go, that my spiritual responsibilities might be fulfilled. See, here's the truth of the matter. I understand that He's the King of kings. I understand He's the Lord of lords. I understand He's the God of gods. I understand He is to be preeminent. He is due our all and total and complete allegiance. But I also understand that He by His divine providence has placed us in this world in which we must operate, in which we must live, in which we must conduct ourselves. And so we are duty-bound. The New Testament epistles make it clear. Duty-bound to engage in civic responsibility. But let us never allow those things to triumph over our responsibilities to God. Hey, listen, our life is hid with Christ in God. We ought to set our affection on things above, not on things of the earth. We ought to set them where Christ is sat on the right hand of God the Father. Our life is hid with Christ in God. That ought to be the preeminent, the primary thing. I'm saying this, if you're letting your spiritual responsibilities go out of deference to temporal responsibilities, you're missing it. You're getting it wrong. You're getting it wrong. I see a truth here about authority. And then finally, and we'll start preaching What is really the heart and spirit of this passage? We find a truth about loyalty. It's, it's amazing to me because the Lord says this. Show me the penny. Verse number 20, He said unto them, Whose is the image? Superscription. He's getting ready to say, This is Caesar's money. It belongs to Caesar. It's okay if it goes back to Caesar. 
It's okay if you carry it around because you have to pay it to Caesar. But never confuse what's Caesar's and what's God's. He says in verse number 21, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's. The politicians will stop there and say, See, i got a biblical mandate for taxation. <laughs> but And by the way, I'm not saying that's altogether wrong, but he goes on and gives a deeper truth. He says, Render unto God the things that are God's. Can I take you back in the Scripture for just a moment? Two things that the Lord says. It bears Caesar's image and his superscription, meaning his inscription, meaning his name, meaning it has been written, his words have been written upon it, and therefore it belongs to him. Can I look at those two words very quickly and then we'll be done? Listen to what Genesis chapter number 1 says about when God created man. Verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he him. In other words, let me just lay it out there. He says, you see that penny? It bears Caesar's image. Therefore, you ought to give it to Caesar. But whose image do you bear? were created in the image of God. And it's fascinating when you follow this word image all through the Bible and through the New Testament in particular because it lays out to us exactly what Christ was talking about here. In Genesis chapter 1, we find the purpose of God. God, because God is life, He wanted to replicate Himself. He wanted to create man in His image and for man to be like Him and He could behold man and see a picture of Himself and man could behold Him and see a picture of Himself. There'd be perfect harmony, perfect fellowship, perfect communion one with another. That was the purpose of God in creating man was to have a being that he could fellowship with a free will choice that's why he created man we find that man did not respond appropriately you can fast forward all the way to Romans chapter number 1 and listen to what man did verse number 20 of Romans chapter 1 says for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. That's us. We're the things that are made. Even His eternal power in Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations. And their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. God said, I'm going to make man in my image. And instead, man cast off the authority of God. He participated in sin. He embraced his own authority and his own sovereignty. And then he tried to create God in the image of man instead of man being in the image of God. We see not only the purpose of God, but the perversion of God. Uh, but we find this in Colossians chapter number 1. God had a plan. <laughs> God had a plan. In fact, let, let me just skip it around. Let me do it a little bit different. In 1 Corinthians 15, we find out what God's plan is. God creates man, wants him to be in his image. Man spurns the image of God and instead says, No, God, I want you to be in my image because I'm God, not you. So what did God do? In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45, it says, And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. That's when God created man in his image. The uh, Bible says the last Adam, the Bible teaches us, that's talking about Jesus Christ, the last Adam was made a quickening spirit. 
Howbeit, that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, so uh, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. God said, I'm going to create man in perfection. He's going to look just like me. Instead, man said, no, we're going to go our own way and we're going to make you look just like us. So God said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send a perfect man to walk upon earth. And that man is going to faithfully represent what I intended man to be. He's going to be the very image of God. Colossians 1.15 says of Christ that He's the image of the invisible God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4 says, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. The Hebrews writer said that Jesus is the express image of God. Christ looked at Philip and He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You say, what are you getting at, preacher? I'm saying this, uh, that God made man in His own image. Man tried to remake God in His image. God said, that ain't going to work. I'm going to have to remake you in my image again. So He said, I'm going to send a perfect man who is a perfect representation of my image to show you what I look like. To show you what I look like. How do we become like that man? The Bible says in Colossians 3, 9, and 10, Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. That first man is that Adamic nature, that natural man, that fleshly man, that carnal man. We've got to mortify him. I'm talking, to, I'm talking to saved people this morning. If you're here lost, I can tell you how to find God. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Hey, we can get you to Calvary, but I'm talking about folks that are saved this morning. How do we look more like Him? We look more like Him by putting off that old nature, that old man, and putting on that new man that's made after the image of Him. Paul, and I wish I had about six more hours... I may, if I keep preaching like this, I may not survive six more hours. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord. Now, how, do we, how do we see the glory of the Lord? Well, the way we see it is through the Scripture and through, through walking with the Holy Ghost as the will of God is exercised in our lives. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord, listen now, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. In other words, as we fix our gaze upon Him, the Bible calls it the engrafted Word, as we fix our gaze upon Him. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the same as in the beginning with God. Uh, we beheld uh, the Word was made flesh, and we beheld His glory, like as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He's the Word. As we behold Him, as we study His Word, as we absorb His Word, as we appropriate His Word, as we obey His Word. And the Spirit of God ministers that truth to our hearts in a way that's transformative. As we follow it and obey it, and the Spirit of God tells us how to follow it and obey it. Is that plain enough? As we follow it, as we read it, follow it and obey it, and when the Spirit of God says, no, son, you're not obeying it, we say, okay, Lord, I'll fix myself, I'll change myself, I'll repent, I'll correct myself, and I'll do what you tell me to do as we're changed into that same image when we behold His glory by the Spirit of God. That's how we become like Him. That's how we become like Him. God's will is that we be like Him. When He shall appear, Brother Fred, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. 
the process of God is that through careful study and reading of the Word of God and obeying of it, we're made into the image of Christ. And now, hey, listen, here's God. He, he said, I want to make man in my image so I can fellowship with him. Man said, I don't want to fellowship with you. I want to do my own thing. I'm not thankful. I'm not grateful. My heart is darkened. I don't want to walk with you. Instead, I'll make you in my image. God said, no, that ain't going to work. <laughs> I love you too much to let you stay in the condition that you're in. So I'm going to send somebody else that is in my image. He's going to die on the cross. He's going to show you what perfection looks like. He's going to die on the cross of Calvary. He's going to be made your distorted image so that you can be made His divine image. He's going to be made sin for you that you might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And then once you're in a justified position, once, you, once the slate's been clean, once you've been redeemed, once what you've done, your rebellion, your insurrection has been addressed and has been answered, then in as much as you fix your gaze on that perfect image, and as you try to emulate it, and as you allow His life to live through you, guess what's going to happen? It's going to fix that distorted visage. And you're going to be made then into my image once again. Preacher, will I get there? I believe you will. You know what Paul said in Romans 8, 29, for whom he did foreknow? He did also predestinate. It doesn't say predestinate to be saved or predestinate to read John Piper or predestinate to drink craft beer and wear skinny jeans and predestinate to sit around wearing scarves arguing about predestination. I said it didn't say predestinate to believe in predestination. It's not what he predestinated us to. He predestined, he didn't, he didn't reform us. He redeemed us. My theology isn't reformed. It's redeemed. He predestinated us to what? To be conformed to the image of His Son. Hey, the will of God for every believer, you know what it ends in? You know how you're going to end up? You're going to end up like Him. Say, well, preacher, why even try if I'm going to wind up like Him? Well, Paul said, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended. So I don't want to wait till heaven to look like Him. But I know that once I get to heaven, my vile body will be made like in His glorious body. I know that, as we already said, when John said, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know, but we know that when He shall appear, but when is He going to appear at the last trump? The trumpet shall sound, the dead in Christ shall be rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. But when the Lord comes back for His bride, for His church, when He appears, we shall be like Him. You know why? For we shall see Him as He is. You know how we're made, Brother Kenny, more like Him? By seeing Him. By seeing Him. You know how we're finally going to be made exactly like Him? When we see Him as He is. I see there's a word about the image. I don't have time, but I'm just going to say it. There's a word about the superscription. The image reminds us that we are to, in character, bear God's likeness. But the superscription reminds us that we are to, in conduct, bear His law. Hey, what's, what's God writing on us? What's God writing on us? Paul said about the church at Corinth, you are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men, for as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not in tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart. What's God writing on us? The Hebrews writer says this, chapter number 8, verse 10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. 
In other words, the words and commandments of God, the truth of God, is to be written on our hearts. You say, well, just our hearts, preacher. Well, that's what's interesting. Two chapters later in, in chapter 10, he says it this way in verse 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. In other words, both the mind and the heart is to bear the commandment and truth of God. How do we do that? Well, we do that by studying and reading. Not only that, by applying and obeying the truth of God. Hey, whose image are you? Render unto God the things that are God's. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. We're not a bunch of anarchists. We're not called to fight a political battle or or an earthly battle. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, then would my servants fight. But you know what? We are called to engage in spiritual warfare. And as, hey, render unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, but you better make sure that you're rendering unto God the things that are God's. Let's bow together this morning as a musician comes to play. The altar is open. I don't know what the Lord may have said to you, but He's right. <laughs> he's right. Whatever the Holy Ghost spoke to your heart about, He's right. Might be some things in your heart and mind keeping you from looking like Jesus. If He pointed them out, He's right. If He said you need to get rid of them, He's right. Won't you obey Him this morning if He's spoken to your heart? Father, bless this invitation. Lord, I love you. Thank you for the truth of your word. I pray that you'd minister it to our hearts and minds and may these next few moments be a time of submission unto you that we might commit and resolve to bear more the image of Christ day by day. Lord, I love you and I ask it in Christ's name.